as we're, as we're opening your Bible, um, I want to just pause and mention uh, that we continue to remember our, our dear friend, Ed Vickers, and the Vickers family. And would you, everyone just say Ed Vickers' name out loud? Ed Vickers. Jesus, we, we pray for Ed. We bless his body. We pray for peace and strength and health in him. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. And I, I did tell my sweet wife. See, the thing about when you have a, a wife as awesome as mine, she treats her in-laws uh, like her own parents. And yeah, and she does. She calls them, texts on them. And, and uh, it's not my fault. My parents raised me like this super independent, like, hey, we're all cool. And so she's calling and checking on them. And so, I, so she says, everything good? And I said, you know, I, I wouldn't have minded honoring my own parents myself. She said, well, you can do it again. I don't know if you know. It's been a while since we were on TV every night, but our dynamic is lots of fun. Um, so anyway, uh, but I, we do want to just, well, 62 years of uh, holy and happy matrimony. Pretty, pretty good stuff. We love my mom and dad. Uh, so the series that we're in is called The Spirit-Filled Church. Let's try it together. The now listen, we've been, not only has there been a bit of a break, but there's always some folks coming in new here and there and some newer faces today. So this is a series is called The Spirit-Filled Church, and we have a couple of big objectives that we have as we're going through this series. We want to, first of all, learn what it meant, and this is the big deal, so that we can... We are not content merely to stare at it like a museum piece. We are not happy with, a, with a, an, ex, an exegesis expedition, simply learning what it meant. We want to live what this means. We want to be the Spirit-filled church. We want to be Spirit-filled people. Everyone said? Amen. That was sort of pretty good. All right. So this, now today we are in Acts chapter 15. So we are about halfway through the book of Acts. Now, normally what I do is I pause and I read the text and then we talk about it just for a minute. But today, because we have such a large swath of scripture that we need to cover, I need to quickly introduce it and then we're going to go through it in real time. So here we are, Acts chapter 15. What we have is another episode of Growing Pains today. In Acts chapter 6, there was an episode of Growing Pains where uh, as the church began to increase in Jerusalem and they needed to solve some problems and, and, uh, and, and, and bring in deacons and put, empower people to serve widows, they solved it there. Well, now we have another set of Growing Pains. By Acts chapter 15, the church in Jerusalem had burgeoned to the point, and then there was a persecution that broke out in chapter 8, sending people all over the place. Remember, everybody went every which way, and, and by, by the time we get to chapter 13, uh, the church in Antioch is, is, uh, has been launched in Syrian Antioch. It's a mostly Gentile population with Jew Jewish leadership, some Jewish leadership anyway, and then that church becomes a missionary center, sending people out. Paul and Barnabas go out, and they're, they're proclaiming claiming the gospel and planting churches. And so the Gentile population of the earth in the region, Gentiles are coming into the church in vast numbers. But remember, the church is originally early. It is a Jewish population, right? So they are Jewish Christians, and now we have Gentile Christians. And the problem is when these people are coming together, worshiping together, and we have generations, and that's an understatement, we have centuries of hostility Jews wouldn't Jews by, by the time we get to first century Judaism some of the it's it's not Torah it's more tradition but they believe Gentiles were only good to be fuel for hell 
they were, to, they were not to be associated with, not to go into their homes. There's all kinds of reasons for that. We've talked about some of them. But so now you've got people that are only good for fuel for hell, never to be spoken of, never to be talked to, never to hang out with. And now they're sitting together in church. How do we figure this out? How do we, they're sitting together in church. They're from different ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, different traditions. And now they're going to, they got to worship together. And, 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 you know, what do you do now that the Gentiles want to come to dinner? Now what are you going to do? Aren't we glad, though, that we are so much more progressive? We have evolved so far beyond this kind of ancient pedestrian Philistine-like conflict. So we can look down our noses at them, at thou, or perhaps we can learn. So here's the thesis uh, idea for today, and then we'll unpack it. Here it is. Are you ready? The Spirit-filled church believes that the Holy Spirit is our assurance of God's acceptance. The Holy Spirit is our assurance of God's acceptance. Let's begin. We're going to go in real time, one portion at a time. We're going to break it into sections. The first section is the crisis, beginning at verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless... You are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses. You cannot be saved. Who came? Well, we don't know. Uh, but later we find out that they weren't sent, but that they came on their own. But we'll fill that in later. They're known, <coughs> they're known in history as Judaizers. Those who are willing for the Gentiles to come into the church, but on the condition that they first become Jews. Basically, the Judaizing statement or a Judaizer idea is this, is unless you fill in the blank, you cannot be saved. It is the insertion of a condition for salvation. <laughs> I, I do enjoy this church. Every service, somebody gets upset and starts talking back to me right about there. <laughs> I, I do like this church. In other words, their message to these new believers was that they must let Moses finish what Jesus started. In other words, their message to these believers, listen to that again, was that they must let Moses finish, or really their own efforts finish. They must finish via their own effort what Jesus started. Now, circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God made with Moses, but they insisted on it being a condition of salvation in Jesus. Now, verse 2 says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Paul and Barney were having nothing to do with this. We know how Paul felt about it from Romans chapter 2 and verse 29, when Paul writes to the church at Rome, No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by written code. Luke continues in verse 2. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told, the gen they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This made all the believers very glad 
Do you see what Luke's doing here? A little bit of a literary thing. We have one group of unknown people coming from Judea this way, and they're bringing a message that is making people very sad. But Paul and Barnabas are going the other way, talking, talking to Jewish believers along the way, telling them how the Gentiles are being saved, and, and they are very glad. Some people bring joy wherever they go. Some people bring joy whenever they go. Either way, be a minister of joy. Bring it or beat it. Here's the conference happened. So in verse 4, when they come to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Listen, always start with good news. Whether it's a prayer meeting or a business meeting or a staff meeting or a family meeting, start with good news. They didn't get there and say, oh, well, what's the trouble? What's the trouble? They started with good news. They started by talking about what God had done. If you've got to solve a problem, if you've got a mountain to climb, if you've got a challenge in front of you, start with good news. Let faith go first. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, Gentiles must, I'm, you might know what I'm emphasizing words, must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. They must, and they are required. Almost sounds like they should, after that, say, papers, please. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you Gentiles. Among you, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now, verse 8 is the axis. This is what turns on the whole thing here. God, who knows the heart, if you're, under, if you're circling or underlining in your Bible, here it is in the NIV. God showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter's rebuttal is to call to their remembrance that God had already proven his acceptance of the Gentiles by giving them the same Holy Spirit in Acts 10 that the apostles received in Acts 2. And they received it in the same way. You remember at the household of Cornelius, Peter is there with what he called the circumcised brethren, the Jewish brethren. They're there. They're proclaiming the gospel to these pagan <laughs> Gentiles. And as they're proclaiming the gospel, when they say that there is forgiveness of sins in his name, the Bible says, as Peter was saying these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And there could be no doubt about it, no doubt about it, no doubt about it. He said, before they heard them speaking in other tongues. And they said, well, God, if God has done this, who can prevent them from being baptized? They recognized that God had signaled his acceptance of them. What was true for the disciples in the upper room was also true for these Gentiles in Galatia. And it is the same true for you and me. The Holy Spirit is our assurance that he has accepted us. Not what we do or how we do it or how well we do it, but our assurance is the Holy Spirit. Our assurance is the Holy Spirit. Therefore, friends, the moving and ministry and infilling and influence of the Holy Spirit can never be negotiable. 
It can never be optional. He can never be an elective in our midst. He can never be simply a doctrine or a practice or a style. Our reverence for the Holy Spirit, our, 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 our openness, our hunger for the Spirit is so integral and vital to our lives. He is our assurance. And He is the influence upon our lives of the age to come. Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13. He says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. He is a seal upon your life of God's ownership and of God's promise of redemption. He is a down payment now of all that is still yet to come. John will write, the Apostle John will write in his epistle, 1 John chapter 3, and this is how we know. Someone say that, and this is how we know. This is how we know. This is how we have a certainty and a confidence that he lives in us. How do we know that he lives in us? Because not by our feelings per se, and not by our mood, and not by our circumstances. Thank God it's not by our circumstances. How do we know that God's with us? Not by our circumstances, John says. We know it by the spirit he gave us. He is our absolute assurance of the presence of God, that God is with us and for us. And we receive that spirit by faith, not by hoops that we jump through, not by earning it, not not by negotiating. Paul said this in Galatians 3, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the spirit? Are you now trying to finish By means of the flesh. The Holy Spirit will sustain and finish what he started. But only he can sustain it. Only he can finish it. We must not even imagine that we can try to finish what he alone started. Peter continued in verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter says, why do you want to test them by placing a yoke upon them? We should not hear that to think that the yoke is somehow, that the law is somehow some sort of a horrible burden. Remember, it was a gracious gift. A yoke in the the Jewish understanding was, was to put on an ox, not to punish an ox, but to steer them in the right direction. It was a gift to go this way, to train them. And that was the law. The law was for that. It was a gracious gift to teach them how to live. But Peter said, we never lived up to it. We failed and failed. It was was something that was given to us that we could never live up to. He said, why are you trying to place failure upon the Gentiles when God is trying to place his spirit on them? But hear this. Peter said, we believe that we are saved by the same grace the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we are saved by the same grace they are. Do you, even the nuance of Peter there, he said, we Jews are saved the same way they are. He didn't elevate, he didn't put themselves in pride of place. Hey, they're, the, they're saved the same way we are. No, we are saved by the same grace that they are. And friends, this is, we are, the same is true for you and for me today. We are not saved by meeting conditions. We are saved, hear this, by fleeing to Jesus for refuge. Have you come to Jesus so that you can be saved? Have you come to Jesus for refuge, for saving from sin's power and penalty? Only Jesus can deliver us from the power and penalty of sin. And if you don't know, then you haven't. 
If you, if you have, you'd know. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Paul and Barnabas telling about the signs and wonders God had done uh, among the Gentiles through them. So the argument was that God had given them the Spirit, and so now Paul and Barney are telling about how the Spirit was at work in the Gentile church and all the signs and wonders that he did. This is really important. They didn't change the channel or change the subject at all. They're saying God has shown his assurance by giving us his Spirit, and, and we are witnesses of the Spirit at work in the church church see when every miracle every sign every wonder every gift of the spirit is an absolute expression of the compassion and kindness of god amen it is absolutely meant to build up and strengthen the church amen but every but it is also absolutely a reminder to us that eternity is real that there is a kingdom, there is a citizenship above and beyond this time. Every time the Holy Spirit works, it is an inbreaking and a sign of the age to come. It draws our hearts in trusting obedience to look for and to trust in our final salvation. This is what the Lord says uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the holy spirit this is god testifying to our salvation these things are not just nice they're necessary signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the holy spirit are not just nice they're wonderful but they're not just nice they're they're necessary Verse 13, when they finished, this is the conclusion of the matter, when they finished, James spoke up. Who's James? James is the brother of Jesus. By this time, James has risen to leadership at the church uh, in, in Jerusalem. He is an elder. Uh, they, they, James was, uh, his history records him with a lot of respect and integrity. They, uh, tradition calls him camel knees. They call him camel knees. Why in the world would they call him camel knees? Well, tradition says that he prayed so often, so much on his knees that his knees, that the surface of his knees changed, like they became like camels. So old, so James stands up and says, Brothers, listen to me. Why do they listen? Well, because it's camel knees Jimmy talking. He says, listen to me, Simon has described for us how God intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement. Would you say this with me? The words of the prophets are in agreement. So if we follow the pattern here of reason, we're talking, we have revelation. Peter reminded them that God spoke to him in that dream and that vision. We have experience. Peter reminds them of the, he, that he saw and experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the household of Cornelius. And now James says, yes, that revelation and that experience is confirmed by and witnessed by the word of God. This is how the Spirit-filled church moves forward, what we consider. What is God speaking? What is God doing? What has God said? And he quotes the Septuagint version of the book of Amos, essentially, and says this. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord. I will I, he said, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. The house of David had fallen. From the year 586, in the year 586, the last descendant of David was on the throne in Jerusalem. Since that time, no descendant of David had ruled as king. 586, 
Five, six hundred years, no descendant of David had ruled. The tent of David had fallen. But the Lord said, I'm going to raise up that tent. I'm going to raise up that tent and put a new king on the throne. And that king is our Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name, listen, the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Now all who bear his name will gather and become a new people. Not Jew and Gentile, but Christians, people from every tribe and every tongue and every culture, gathering around one name by one spirit. Verse 19, James continues, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Not make it difficult. What does that mean? We should not put speed bumps on the road when people are trying to come to Jesus. We should not put speed bumps or tolls. <laughs> That's funny. We should not put tolls or speed bumps or obstacles in their way. We should not make it difficult for people to turn to Jesus. When they're trying to come home, we should not make it hard on them. Instead, he said, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in synagogues on every Sabbath. James concludes that a letter should be written. That's exciting for paying attention in the text. This is the first time that's mentioned. This is the first time a letter is being sent. This is the first epistle. Ah, it's the epistle of James. That's kind of cool. And, and here it is. And, and, and the letter is telling the Gentiles essentially these things. Number one, to avoid association with idolatry. How is it addressing idolatry when it talks about meat offered to idols? Well, idolatry, the practice of idolatry was to engage or try to solicit the attention or the affection or the intervention of spiritual powers to aid people in daily life. And one of the ways they did this was to go to these idol temples and uh, they would bring sacrifices, they would bring food, they'd bring meat, and they'd bring it to the priest who would cut it up and then give some back to them and the revelers would eat the meat and they would engage in all kinds of licentious and grotesque uh, behavior in idol temples, and then the meat left over, they'd put in front of that idol. Here you go. Eat up. Well, the idol didn't eat the meat. So what do they do with the meat? They sell it. They take the meat to market. So on the, at the marketplace, you got USDA meat, and then you got used meat. <laughs> idol meat. Some people are like, sweet, I get it. I, some people, that was either, either it was a good deal to buy the idol meat or, ooh, cool, I'm going to buy idol meat. Hey, we're having idol meat tonight, guys. Whoa. And, but the idea was that if you bought that meat, you were still associating with, you were still uh, paying homage to or respect to those idols, which is why later on when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he's like, hey, look, guys, I know it's just meat. But if you, if you do that, what you're doing is you are, you are making public your association with idolatry, and you're going to hurt somebody in doing that. And so they write to them saying, avoid any association with idolatry, number one. So, number two, avoid any kind of sexual immorality. It is so important that we hear this not from a 21st century view, but from a 1st century view. In the 21st century, sexual morality is only determined by consent. Anything goes as long as it's consensual and we push the bounds on who, who says it, it's consensual. No longer is it, is it, is it conduct, it's, con, it's, it's consent. But in the first century, not so much. 
In the first century, these Jewish believers understood this. Sexual immorality is any kind of sexual behavior that is outside of a husband and wife in the covenant of marriage. Avoid any kind of sexual congress, any kind of sexual behavior that is outside of God's ordained plan. And then thirdly, to avoid any disrespect for blood. See, they avoid strangled animals. Don't eat from strangled animals or blood. Why would you do that anyway? But part of the Gentile practice was to, instead of the slaughtering and the draining of the blood, some would strangle an animal and leave the blood in there and then eat that. So they say, stay away from that and from blood. What's the big deal? Because this, this all goes back to the Noahic covenant. Uh, Genesis chapter 9, you can see all of these principles present. The sanctity, of, the sanctity of life, the honor of God, the sanctity of life, the sacredness of human sexuality, and that life is in the blood. Say it out loud with me. Life is in the blood. So they were, they were not to dishonor blood because life is in the blood. This is about the sanctity of life. Now, this is not, this letter was not an end all for Christian ethics. It wasn't the final word in all things. This was establishing some kind of shared ethics in order for early Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians to share space, to share life, and even to share a table together. But we should not miss the fundamental principles that are here. They're still here for us. Christians do not participate in idolatry. We do not acknowledge or entertain or engage with mystical powers or witchcraft or spells or superstition or the occult or any of that stuff. It's very real, it's really dangerous, and it's really evil. Secondly, Christians honor the sacredness of human sexuality. Christians also honor the sanctity of life. Now the communication. When the apostles and elders in the whole church decided to choose some of their own men, verse 22, choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, uh, called Barsabbas, and Silas, along with, uh, who were leaders along with the believers. They sent them, uh, with them they sent the following letter. Apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out. Did you hear where it went? Some went out from, not sent, went. Some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. We need to call a quick timeout and we need to listen to that. Here's the deal. People went out without relationship and without accountability and brought, brought a message that disturbed and troubled the minds of those who heard it. Listen, friends, people, people, only, people have, only have authority to prophesy in our lives if there is relationship and accountability. Without relationship and accountability, they have no right to speak authoritatively into your life. So if you're listening to YouTube and some fruitcake is troubling your mind, turn it right. off. If some social media prophet comes wandering in your life, starts telling you what to do, and you sense trouble, you're, you're disturbed, that's because it's not from God. 
we function, the spirit-filled church functioned in relationship and with accountability. That's why they said, listen, we're sending you this letter. We're sending you our friends, Paul and Barnabas, and Judas and Silas. We are sending people that we're in relationship with and you're in relationship with, with this letter, because that's how we speak. That's how we give instruction. That's accountability. That's prophecy. That's authority. If you're listening to stuff that you don't know and it's troubling you and confusing you, stop photocopying it and send it to everybody. Hey, some fruitcake said I should be worried. So should you. Stop it. Verse 25. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you. I said that already. So they've risked their lives for the name of Jesus. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we're writing. What do they say? Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond these requirements. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I love that we give the Holy Spirit pride of place. This is the principle for us. He goes first. He leads first. He speaks first. And we agree with him. We follow his lead. And here's the summary. Verse 29, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Listen to that last sentence. You will do well to avoid these things. You want to try that sentence with me? You will do well to avoid these things. Friends, what, he's, what they're saying is to the church, the, the folks, the Gentiles, listen, they would do well, and they would also get along well with others if they avoided these things. Listen, my friends who are here with me today, you will do well to avoid some stuff. And the things, not everything is a matter of your salvation, but you'll still do well to avoid it. You may be able to justify it or explain it or excuse it or hide it, but you'll do well to avoid them altogether. For the sake of your own soul, for the sake of your own growth, for the sake of your own peace, for the sake of how well you're connecting with others, there are things that are better off avoided. How do you know if it's something that you should avoid? If it's troubling you and troubling your relationships, it's probably best avoided. What would you do well to avoid, friends? What TV? What programs? What films? What games? What apps? Sometimes we need to consider what beverages. And I listen, maybe you've had too much coffee. If that's a thing. There's water here. This is water. What crowds or company might you do well to avoid? Again, friends, it may not be a matter of your salvation, but it may very well do you well to avoid it. The passage concludes with, from verse 30. So they sent off, went to Antioch. They gathered the church, delivered the letter. The people read it. They were glad for his encouraging message. Then Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. Do you hear the difference between how this ends and how it starts? People in relationship, in accountability, come and they speak. And when they speak, the result is encouragement and strength. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace. Starts off with conflict, ends up with peace. By relying on the assurance of the Holy Spirit, by recognizing that there are things that we should avoid in order to do well and to get along well, the church returned to peace and continued to prosper. 
That is the Spirit-built church. Now, as we close this morning, I just want to give you a couple of thoughts by way of application. We've already touched on a host of principles. Here's a couple more just in summary. First of all, friends, we do not have to choose between doctrinal purity and peace. We do not have to compromise truth just in order to get along, nor do we have to sacrifice peace in order to be right. We can resolve our concerns much in the same way they did here. Secondly, we must recognize and reject our tendency to control others so that we will feel better. Thirdly, following Jesus does not mean anything goes. Following Jesus means there are things we should avoid. That are, some are immoral, some are unethical, and some just really hurt other people's feelings. Our ethics should be, uh, should be inspired by, uh, by, inspired by our desire to avoid controlling others and yet also not wanting to offend them. Finally, first and most importantly, we must rely upon the Holy Spirit to be the assurance and influence of our citizenship in heaven. We are to be filled, continuously filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5. We are not to grieve the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4.30. We are not to quench the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5. We are to earnestly seek His gifts in 1 Corinthians 14. And we are to walk in the entirety of our lives according to His power and influence in Galatians 5.16 and 25. The Holy Spirit is our, accept, our assurance of God's acceptance. And this is the Spirit-filled church. Can we stand together as we close? Before the worship team sings, I'm just going to ask you three questions that I'd like you to think about we sing this chorus one time through. I'm going to have my prayer workers come. We want to pray with you if you'd like to pray before you leave today. First of all, have you taken refuge in Jesus? Have you taken refuge in Jesus? Have you come to Jesus to save you from sin's power and penalty? If you have not, you are still under sin's power and facing sin's penalty. And I urge you to run to Jesus for refuge and salvation. Secondly, are there some things that you would do well to avoid? Give it a moment's thought. How do you know? Are things troubling you or creating trouble around you? Those are things you would do well to avoid. And lastly, I'll just say this. Do you need the assurance of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? We want to pray with you and for you. The Holy Spirit has a wonderful gift for you that provides such wonderful assurance, just like we see in the, in the book of Acts, that people experience the assurance of God's presence as the Holy Spirit enables them to pray, to pray and to, and to sing sometimes, but to speak in a spiritual language of prayer and praise. Let's open our hearts to the Holy Spirit this morning. Sing that chorus. Come, Holy Spirit, I need you.
hands. I need to turn you loose. I need to let you go so others can come and you can go. But if you would like someone to pray with you about some of those things that we mentioned this morning, these here are waiting for you. You can come and pray as long as you like. Otherwise, the Lord bless you. Keep his hand upon you. Go, may you, you are loved. You are safe. And where you go, we go. God bless you. Come in your strength and